Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkshire host, and our guest is Jing Su, a professor of modern Chinese literature and culture, author of Failure, Nationalism and Literature, The Making of Modern Chinese Identity, 1895 to 1937. Professor Su is also co-editor of Global Chinese Literature, Critical Essays with David Derwai Wang of Harvard and also co-editor of Science and Technology in Republican China with Benjamin Elman of Princeton. Today we talk with Professor Su about her recent book, Sound and Script in Chinese Diaspora. Welcome, Professor Su. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's begin with an overview of your book. Tell us about it. The book is about native speakers and mother tongues in the global Chinese language trade. And when we think about native speakers and mother tongues, they seem to go perfectly together. Mm -hmm. But in fact, what this study tries to show is how much actually goes into making that relationship. There are writers who are writing those languages. There are colonial policies and national policies that try to change those relationships. And there's technology of writing that try to, in some ways, circumvent those relationships. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what led you to write the book? What gave you the idea? Um, the book, uh, as you know, I work on modern China, 19th century to the present. And to me, this book is very much, it was the timelessness, the timeliness that prompted me to write it. And at the time that when everyone has, everyone in the world has their eyes on China, there's a sense that even these diasporic communities, which have not been a, a strong point of emphasis in this history, are also gravitating back to China. And they've shared a rather contentious history. Mm -hmm. And one of the remarkable things is actually the issue of language, how there are writers outside of China who might not even receive Chinese language education who come to write in Chinese, and they write novels, they write, write poetry about um, their places of sojourn in Southeast Asia, in South America, in Africa. And it becomes quite interesting to understand how are they relating to the idea of standard Mandarin in their writings. Mm -hmm. And how do you think they are? Give us some examples. Well, there's the Malaysian Chinese writer who is actually, who are actually quite um, an active group at the moment. And many of them were educated in um, Taiwan for college. And prior to that, there are various places in Malaysia. And one of the reasons they went to Taiwan in the 70s and 80s as a sort of a secondary diaspora is because, of course, China at that time was quite close to the outside world. Mm -hmm. And that was also part of the Cold War configuration where Taiwan seemed to be a more um, hospitable place for their studies. And these writers come to learn Chinese literature basically in a sense that is not their first context. Mm -hmm. um, they're generally from southern China, so they actually speak at home. They grew up with certain dialects that are actually not part of um, they're not really represented. I mean, that one of the key things is that, you know, dialects in general, you know, we talk about Mandarin Chinese, and that's basically all we know, but there's seven topolect groups, and there are two particularly large ones, um, and they're southern. So it's very complicated as to who decided what was going to be the standard Mandarin in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. and, but because of that nationalization process, that question was never quite, I think, reopened for um, inquiry and debate. 
So now these writers haven't been in diaspora for many decades, some of them born in Southeast Asia or in the United States, North America. They come to question what exactly is their place and is a nature relationship, not just to China, but to the very language that they choose to write in and the language that identifies them as Chinese. And why do you think that matters? Well, I imagine the sense that language matters to you or me. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, being a native speaker of something, we don't really question. We're all born into a certain mm -hmm. kind of language. And what's remarkable is that we come to really defend them with a passion. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is what's interesting about Chinese language, and I'm sure in other contexts as well, because Chinese language, the written language in particular, has this very long history. I mean, it's not just something that we use to communicate in, but it has its origin in a theory of writing that has to do with the cosmos, it has to do with resonating with a certain kind of a universal pattern in the universe. Um, you know, in some ways, if anyone's, if you've seen Chinese characters, you know, the, the so-called ideographic, which is actually false, you understand that it's easy to project that onto certain phenomena in the world, to say that it actually resonates with cycles of nature. Mm -hmm. um, patterns are produced by waves or bird tracks or just like configuration of the clouds. So traditionally, Chinese has had this kind of philosophical, very strong philosophical resonance. Mm -hmm. And that become a source of intense cultural pride um, to a degree that, you know, especially now, I mean, with the, I think with the popular, uh, popularity of learning Chinese, I mean, at Yale, we get students who come in as freshmen, then they already have six or seven years of Mandarin yes. under their belt. Mm -hmm. And it's quite remarkable sort of how that happens. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that interests me is precisely how these writers, whether they're they have a privileged background that is Chinese speaking, or whether they're in places like Malaysia, where Chinese was actually a minority language, how they struggle to precisely keep that kind of cultural heritage while not solely or wholly identifying with mainland China. Mm -hmm. I see. And how did you go about your research? Well, the research, the, as you know, I've been working on Chinese diaspora. So the research itself sort of takes me to different places. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of archival work um, in China, Singapore, Malaysia, um, Taiwan. Hong Kong, um, and as I continue the diaspora project, it's almost like I'm following the itinerant, their itinerary mm -hmm. by going to places like South America and Africa and Hawaii and so on and so forth. Okay, and you talk about Lynn's typewriter in your book. Talk about why that's so important. That is actually my favorite. It was the, it was the most fun chapter to write mm -hmm. in a book. And I think it's almost also the most accessible in the sense that, I mean, the book itself actually deals with Malaysia, Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, bilingual writers in North America. So these dynamics are generally between standard languages and dialects. But I think what the Lin Yitang's um, typewriter chapter does is to translate that into an extended, show how it has an extended valence and a kind of global language war that was happening during the Cold War period between English, Russian, but actually most importantly, I think Chinese, which had a strong reverberation. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that Lin Tang is also uh, an interesting character for a lyric scholar like myself is because he's actually the most celebrated bilingual Anglophone writer. Okay. Very successful in the 30s and 40s. Um, he was very good friends with Pearl Buck, but they actually then had a falling out precisely over the typewriting project, which I'll explain in a moment. Okay. And Lin Tang had been a very clever bilingual writer. He wrote these essays, and, and he's a, he was a very famous essayist. And he had a, a very clever and very, had a great style in English as well. And he got his PhD in Leipzig in philology. Mm -hmm. And he, so he has this very long um, obsession and interest. And in around the 20s, 1920s, he started to think about what is the future of Chinese. And at that time, he was not alone. 
There were lots of people who were thinking about what is the future of the Chinese writing system. Um, even before then, in the 19th century, the first group of people who thought about revamping the Chinese script were actually advocating doing away with it altogether. So we actually came quite wow. close before the nationalist period, right on the cusp of that term from empire to nation, where we almost lost the Chinese written language. And what would have taken its place? Well, it depends on whose proposal you will go with. And there were roughly about 30 plus um, that, that we know of, but I suspect many more than that. Um, there were proposals to go the Romanization route, so simply mm -hmm. use alphabetic letters. There were um, proposals to use shorthand, like Pittman or Lindsley, um, very much following. Um, they were actually inspired by um, certain congressional hearings in the states that were actually taken in shorthand. So these Chinese observers at that time felt quite, they were quite impressed by this, and they wanted to import that. Because the crux of the issue is this longer contention, is um, the, the struggle between the ideographic and um, alphabetic language. Mm -hmm. And there's this, this long prejudice thinking that ideographic is more, it's like a picture, it's more, um, it is not really amenable to abstract thinking that is not even amenable to science. That is not amenable to scientific advancement because people are tied down with hours of learning. I mean, thinking back to the way I grew up, I did in fact spend hours every day practicing characters. It's just and there are, or wrote, is, am I correct, 3,000 of them or so? Uh, you need about four to 5,000 for average literacy. Oh my goodness. There are a lot more. Ah. And I think the most difficult character has something about, somewhere about 30 something strokes. So oh that's goodness. a lot of lines and a lot of, certainly a lot of order is. of the strokes to remember. And timeliness, I mean it takes a while I would imagine to it write does. anything. And this is, this is a well-known, long-standing uh, complaint mm -hmm. among not just the Chinese, but missionaries who went to China and who has to figure out how to translate or Romanize um, the Bible for Chinese consumption. Mm -hmm. So they were the first ones who came up with these, these different schemes. But that's different from the 19th century script reformers who wanted to come up with their own thing. Okay. So some of them also, also opted for certain kinds of alphanumerical system that's supposed to be patterned on the Book of Change, so on and so forth. Quite esoteric. Mm -hmm. What's funny is that all of them thought these proposals would be really easy to learn, that if you use their scheme, you will learn. I think one of them says, Eight weeks a day in two weeks, you'd be completely fluent in Chinese. Oh boy. And I could tell you from personally working through <laughs> these different <laughs> schemes, they're not Impossible. at all intuitive. Yeah. And also because sounds change, right? I mean, in, some, in fact, writing is very stable. Mm -hmm. and the Chinese writing system has been very stable over the centuries. Um, but, you know, the way we talk really is quite different, mm -hmm. even from, you know, if you look at old movies from the 40s and 50s, I mean, they already speak American English, mm -hmm. it's quite different from the way we sound now. Well, going back to your, the comment you just made, it's, it's very standardized. I would imagine that you have individual people making these Chinese characters. I would imagine it would vary from person to person how they would make that character, and that would cause some problems down the line, versus the typewriter, which is standard every time you're making the same mark. That is correct, and that's that's one of the that's one of the outcomes of Leaning Town's typewriter. I mean, typewriting technology is about it's the age of mechanization, standardization, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But what was key about Leaning Town's typewriter was not that he standardized; he helped, he wanted to standardize it, but he wanted to make it available and easy to use for non-Chinese speakers. Okay. This is quite extraordinary. Okay. Because his idea was that for any person who doesn't know Chinese at all. They could come to this keyboard, look at it, and immediately know how to use it. 
and how is this accomplished? Well, he came up with a crucial scheme, which is how you parse characters. So indexing Chinese characters is a very laborious feat, and there have been several systems for it. Mm -hmm. Lin Yitang thought all of them require that you already know the language already in order to look it up in a dictionary. And he wanted a lookup system that would be intuitive to anybody. Mm -hmm. So he devised a scheme. For instance, Tume, who's never seen? That's right. Okay. So you, if you were standing next to Lin Yitang's typewriter, uh -huh. you'd be able to use it. Wow. Because the way it's set up is there are 72 keys on this keyboard, mm -hmm. which is the the crucial component. And he divides all Chinese characters into top and top um, and bottom components. So 38 keys are about the top component and the rest are, or sorry, 36 are the top components and t the rest of keys signify lower components. Okay. And what you do is you look at a character that you want to put in the typewriter. You can identify just the top part and the bottom part. You look at the corresponding parts on the keyboard. You press the two keys down at the same time. And then a little window is supposed to pop up in front of this machine that's sort of mm -hmm. attached onto it. And then it'll give you a range of five to eight choices, which is just how it works out mathematically. Mm -hmm. And one of them is going to be the right character you're looking for. And then you go to where the current day space bar is. So on Lee Tan's typer, the space bar is divided into eight separate keys, individual keys, mm -hmm. just number one to eight. And that corresponds to the different characters in this pop-up window. Mm -hmm. Then the third step is that you press that corresponding key to get the right character that then gets slapped onto the page. Seems complicated to me. It, it, it does seem complicated <laughs> now, but I tell you, it had remarkable it had remarkable repercussions because and this what was, were they? Well, this is this is a way of making Chinese characters readily globally accessible. Mm -hmm. The characters, yes, but still the meaning. Was there a disconnect between picking the characters and, and what you actually wanted to convey? Well, that is still, uh, yes, that is generally, that, is, that remains a problem, actually. Mm -hmm. How we want to, there's, there's, one, there's one problem to replicate and know how to reproduce the character, but it's a separate issue to sort of make sure that it matches up to the right meaning. Mm -hmm. But that's not really a danger with Lin Yitang typewriter. Okay. The idea is that this keyboard, which helps to um, basically amass and to recall characters that will you add computer technology to that, then you have very powerful ways of translating through machine, mm -hmm. like one character into like a different language. Okay. Which is what eventually, what, 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 what makes this remarkable is that Lin Yitang's typewriter coincided time of Cold War cryptography, were very interesting the idea of machine translation mm -hmm. using Chinese. And it just so happens that by the time Lin Yitang was done with it, he has sold the copyright to Mercantile Linotype Company, mm -hmm. but it was too expensive for them to develop en masse. So what happened was at the same time, the US, um, the US Air Force was actually conducting experiment and trying to tap into the machine translation. Mm -hmm. And they decided they really needed that one keyboard that could help them with a the basic conversion problem and they decided on this keyboard. Wow. And so Lin Tang's keyboard ended up in the hands of IBM, to whom the US Air Force turned the project to, to develop further. Mm -hmm. And in collaboration with several American universities, including Yale, that this keyboard then became sort of the blueprint for a later typewriter they unveiled in summer 1963. Mm -hmm. Were you able to find any research at Yale um, in terms of that part of the story? The time there were actually uh, there was um, there was a, a scholar from the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. who was actually the first person in the United States who wrote about 
language standardization and national language in China. Mm -hmm. and he unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. He was in fact at Yale for a very, very long time. And actually towards the end of his life when I had the pleasure of visiting him in his home in Hawaii, it's John DeFrancis, he actually shared uh, many of his unpublished works and oh. primary sources with me. But what was remarkable is that in this beautiful home that he had in Hawaii, um, Japanese style house, um, there was actually a typewriter that he had been working on for years, and it was his version, his ah. version of the Chinese language typewriter. And did it come to fruition? Were you able to use it? No, unfortunately, that the technology was not quite there, and mm -hmm. he was basically doing this on his own. And I have to say, this is many people were trying to join this race of coming up with that one Chinese typewriting technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lin Tong had several competitions at the time, mm -hmm. and even before him, decades before him, Western missionaries have been trying to do the same. But his was really the one that helped to translate it and make it accessible for global usage. Okay. You were going to tell us a story about his falling out with Pearl Buck. Ah, well, Lin Tong was a very successful writer mm -hmm. and many bestsellers in the English language. And he basically poured all these resources into this typewriter, which he had been working on for most of his life. And he really did it with a passion. And what happened was Pearl Buck was the one who brought him to the United States and convinced him to settle down here and become a writer, and kind of a spokesperson for China and the English language. How did they ever become acquainted? Um, they met in China, mm -hmm. actually, because Pearl Buck also spent some time in China, mm -hmm. and that's where she met him. But after he came, he was so obsessed with the project, he kind of needed extra cash. I, he, I think he almost became bankrupt, trying oh to boy. pour his own resource into this. And the story is that he bar, tried to borrow money from them, and they sort of had a fallout. But I th suspect there were other issues as well, like I what see. kind of writing he was going to write for the American audience, so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Right, okay. So what do you conclude in your book? Well, after studying this, you know, the very so different locations mm -hmm. where Chinese language um, is written by Chinese or non-Chinese. Um, it seems to drive a wedge between the notion of a native speaker and the kind of standardized language that could be the mother tongue or the national language. So one of the things I conclude with in the book, because language has so, many, so much to do with also ideas of race and ethnicity, mm -hmm. is that you know, the idea of native speaker has been to language what color has been to race. That is to say, it's really been one of those, um, perhaps the last bastion of constructed essentialism that we still embrace mm -hmm. without too much reflection. And it has played out throughout the 20th century, um, played out many different conflicts, um, ambivalence, and I think individual and collective traumas in a way that one might be voiceless without a language. For instance, you might think of um, Taiwan writers during the Japanese colonial period, so their mother tongue they were not supposed to even think in Chinese. Mm -hmm. The idea was that they were supposed to think in order to become Japanese citizens, mm -hmm. or I mean, not even quite citizens, but become proper imperial subjects, they were supposed to think in Japanese. And how so, hard is that? Well, how I mean, hard is that to police? <laughs> so there's exactly. also the sense that there's kind of an interiority to the idea of native mm -hmm. speaker as well. You know, how we embrace, I mean, as a literary scholar, you know, it's, it's a joy to be, read, to be able to read in one's mother tongue. You mm -hmm. just have a different sense of that language right. and a different feel. But, you know, that, that kind of um, unquestioned um, um, sense of an innate access to something, I think it also colors how we think about race or gender. So any of these that have been dismantled in mm -hmm. the past few decades, um, the same has not really happened for language. And of course, like what happens when we dismantle the idea of a national language and what it's supposed to mean, I mean, that actually spells out, uh, I think, quite a challenge for literary studies at large, right, where we're still organized very much 
by national language right. departments. Yes. Well, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for being here with us Thank today. Thank you for having me. For more information about Professor Sue and her work, please visit our website at yale.edu slash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.